God's the creator. He's the potter and we're the clay. If you open up your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9, how many of you, um, when you were reading this, kind of left with the question, what? And I heard Allison say, thank God we had two weeks to do this lesson because it was long. And I know for myself that um, when I was doing it, I had to reread and reread and reread and then look up after commentary after commentary. And then it just hit me by letting the Holy Spirit just guide me through this chapter. It just dawned on me on the vastness of God and how great his sovereignty is. How many of you remember the old TV show, Gomer Pyle? Surprise, surprise, surprise. Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. Because every time we feel that we think we have God all figured out, And every time we think we know God's character and who he's going to save and who he's not going to save and why he allows this in my life and look at my condition. And every time we question that, we can come back to scripture and be surprised that just because we're going through what we're going through doesn't mean he loves us any less. He loves us with all his heart and everything that we do and everything that we say will always be for the glory to God. God and his sovereignty works in surprising ways so that no one can ever presume his grace or say that they have figured God out. Understanding God in all his fullness is impossible. In fact, in Job 36 tells us that God is infinitely beyond our understanding. And however, does that mean we should avoid the subject altogether? No, because God has made many of his traits and attributes understandable. God has revealed himself to humanity throughout his book, the Bible. By reading and studying his book, we learn who he is, how he responds, and how he revealed himself to us. Here are some highlights of God's nature. And before we start this chapter 9, let's, I, I want you to see how big God is and who he is. God is spirit, John 4, 24. He exists everywhere. Psalms 139. He knows everything, Psalms 147. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Matthew 3. God addresses himself in parental terms, the Father. God is infinite. 1 Timothy, unchanging Malachi, and incomparable 2 Samuel. Another key to understanding God a little more is a study of his attributes. And these characteristics are revealed in the Bible, are crucial to understanding the truth about God, who he is, and what he is like, and what he does. Wisdom of God, God makes no mistakes. He is the Father who truly knows best, Romans 11. He's infinite God. God knows no boundaries. He is without measure. Hebrews. Sovereignty of God. God is in control of everything that happens. Isaiah 46. 
holiness of God. There is absolute no sin or evil thought in God at all. Exodus 15. Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one God. Omniscience of God. God knows everything and his knowledge is infinite. Psalms 147. Faithfulness of God. Everything that God has promised will come to pass. Deuteronomy 7. The love of God. God holds the well-being of others in his primary concern. 1 John 4. Omnipotent God. God is all-powerful. Ephesians 1. The self-existent God. He is no. He has no beginning or end. He just exists. John 17. Self-sufficient of God. God has no needs and there is no way he can improve himself. Colossians 1. God is just. God is fair and impartial. Psalm 75. The immutability of God. God never changes. Mercy. Mercy is the way God desires to relate to us, to mankind. And he does so unless the person chooses to despise or ignore him, at which time his justice becomes the prominent attribute. And that's in Nehemiah 13. Eternal God, God always has been and will forever be because God dwells in eternity, Psalm 90. The goodness of God, God by nature is inherently good, Psalm 34. God is gracious. God enjoys giving great gifts to those who love him even when they do not deserve it. Isaiah. The omnipresence of God. God is always present and knows no boundaries. Jeremiah 23. And as we consider the bigness of who God is, there are some things and questions that we will not understand this side of heaven and we're not supposed to. And we're not supposed to question that. Yes, we can ask God in our private time in prayer. God, show me Show me what is going on in my life right now. Give me clarity. Give me understanding. Help me to endure it. Help me to um, plow through it, if you will. And if you have a question, always remember to take it to him in prayer. And so let's pray real quick. Father God, we just want to open up this morning with you, and we commit this time and this study of your word And I ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit will just anoint these teachings, Lord, that we need to understand clearly from you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that nothing of myself will come throughout any of these teachings, Lord, that I'm just being used as a vessel to relate to the women, Lord, the goodness of who you are and the the bigness of who you are and, and the smallness of us, Lord. You're the potter, we're the clay. Just keep molding us, Lord, so that we can just continue to look like you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from you this morning Romans chapter 9 in the NIV translation. The NIV translation, if you don't already know this, um, is pretty much the closest translation that you'll get from all of the translations to the uh, original transcripts. So I'm going to read it to you in the NIV, and then we'll go back, and we'll look at it through the the New King James Version, because I know most of us here have New King James. So follow with me, if you will, on Romans chapter 9. Remember, this is Paul the Apostle. He is writing to the church in Rome. Remember, he has the money 
ready to go to Jerusalem to hand off the <clears throat> collection for the poor. And then his thought process is to go to Jerusalem, say, hi, here's the money, and head out to Rome. So here he is. He's, he's writing this letter to the church in Rome. And remember, it's uh, predominantly uh, Jewish Christians, okay? <clears throat> Verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory. Theirs is the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all and forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, when they, when then, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery, For special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my beloved, 
my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Okay. So let's look at verse 1. When we last left in chapter 8, and I'm really going to try to get you guys out of here, but I don't think it's going to happen. Just letting you know. When we last left in chapter 8, That was that big high point. Remember, Paul is telling us, nothing can separate you from God. Nothing. And he lists all those things in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To now, the very next sentence in chapter 9, he goes into a deep sorrow. Paul had defended the position that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles had been removed, that the Jews could not be saved by any external advantage which they possessed, that all were alike guilty before a sovereign God, and that there was only one way for Jews and Gentiles to be saved, and that is believing in Jesus Christ. Paul is going to walk us through three points. God's sovereignty, God's justice, and Israel's current unbelief. Paul shows us deep sorrow for his own people, even though Jesus specifically called Paul to preach to the Gentiles. He can't but stop and think why his own people are rejecting Jesus. And we can probably relate this turmoil to a prodigal son maybe a prodigal daughter or a family member. The hurt that is placed inside us is what our Lord Jesus Christ goes through every time he is rejected. And here in chapter 9, we see a glimpse of the apostle's heart, broken and sorrowful. A man that once himself was the ringleader persecuting the Christians, those who were following the way. And now his life committed to preach the gospel to everyone has he runs into And in an agony for his kinsmen, who are not accepting their own Messiah, we catch a glimpse through Paul, the same sorrowful heart that Jesus had. Faith is the only item which God accepts from us. 
any person, regardless of race or condition, can find mercy at the cross. Have you ever ran into someone of your own old buddies, maybe before you had the Jesus come into your heart? And then when they ask you, hey, how's it going? What are you doing these days? And you start telling them all that you're doing. Most of the time, they're probably going to look at you and say, what? No way. Get out. Are you kidding? And that's what Paul is trying to tell us here in chapter 9, that he wants to tell the Jews, I tell you the truth. I am not lying. I've accepted this Jesus. I've accepted him as my Lord and Savior. What was that saying that we all grew up with? I cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. (laughs) Verse 1, I tell you... I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. The Holy Spirit guides the Christian conscience in knowledge and in emotion. Paul's conscience was trustworthy because he submitted it to the Holy Spirit, which provided Paul with very definite guidance. It affirmed what he wrote was true and what he felt was right. Our conscience can guide us when we live in the Spirit, which is being obedient to God's Word. Second John 1 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. John 15, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus telling his disciples. And it is very important that we live our lives with the guidance of the Holy Spirit in everything we do and everything we say. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why is he saying that? Paul knows the thoughts of his fellow Jews, how they felt about the Messiah toward Christianity. Why? Because he himself was one of them, a Pharisee, a leader, persecuting the Christians. You can probably hear the sounds of this letter being read. Yeah, right. You you have grief for us. You left us. You left your countrymen and started following this Jesus. The leader of I hate Christians to now being the most passionate follower of Jesus. His assignment from the Lord was yes to the Gentiles, His heart wanted so much for his kinsmen to accept the Messiah. Do we have great sorrow for the lost, for our loved ones, for our neighbors, for the homeless, for the proud of heart? Or do we just go on our merry way in hoping that nobody gets in our way? Jesus said, what? Feed my sheep. That's just not to all who are appointed to teach. That's for all of us who accept Jesus. It's to once you're fed, grab someone else, share the good news of the gospel. This feeling of sorrow inside of us, great or small, gives us a molecule portion of what Jesus felt. And if we have just a smidge of grief of someone in our family, our neighbor, the world, the person asking for money, We can only begin to imagine what Jesus felt on the cross for the entire world. Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for 
for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Why is Paul saying that? Why is Paul saying such a hard declaration of, I will give up my own salvation if the human, if the Jews would accept Jesus? Why would he say that? We see this extent and passion that Paul states he would be willing to go on behalf of his fellow Jews, willing to be separated from Jesus. Have you ever seen someone in so much pain, maybe a child, a parent, a family member, and it burdens you to the point to where you secretly ask God, give the pain to me. I don't want them to go through it. Give it to me. I will take it. I was thinking as us moms, when we, when one of our children does something that's breaking the rules of the house, and before the father comes home, because he's going to come home and find out, and before he finds, when he finds out, all heck will break loose. And so what do we do as moms to protect our kids? Let me talk to your father. I'll take the heat before the table goes thrown across the living room. Paul, wanting to do this for his own countrymen, noble, yes. Expressing a deep burden and sorrow. Necessary, no. Jesus already paid the penalty on the cross for the Jews, for the Gentiles, for the world. And putting aside the memories of being persecuted, remember as he will soon again experience, his love for them was so strong that he would, if practicable, save them. The great passion for the souls of men gives us a bigger perspective. Get love for the souls that are lost, then we will stop whining about the little disturbances life throws at us. Pastor Tanner mentioned on Sunday, if you were listening, that once we get to heaven, we're going to be, well, I don't know if we'll be able to look down and say, look at all the troubles that we went through, but it's just going to be, what were we thinking when we're surrounded by all this glory? Next, Paul is going to go on and tell us who are the Israelites. Verse 4, who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God? Amen. Paul lists eight things that identify the children of Israel. What is your identity in Christ? I'm going to read this list, but I want you to think, what is your identity in Christ? The adoption, they were God's chosen race of people, Exodus 6. The glory, the physical presence of God. Remember when the tabernacle was completed and all set up? God's glory resided in the temple, Exodus 40. The covenants, God established his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. The law, the Mosaic law, Ten Commandments. The service of God, God showed them how they were to worship him in the temple. The promise, the Old Testament, abounds with promises made to Israel of the Messiah and of the spread of the true religion from from them, Ephesians 2. The fathers refers to the patriarchs. Israel is honored with an illustrious ancestry on which they highly valued themselves. Christ the Messiah, their supreme privilege was that Christ came from their heritage. And so Paul is baffled here why they won't accept Jesus. 
sickness, giving him great sorrow. Verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. The word of God is God's promises. God's promises do not fail. We fail God. For they are not all Israel who are Israel. They had received the word of God. They had received the covenant. They had received the promise. They had received the law. God does not choose based on all of these things. Paul is going to attempt to explain the very scripture that the Jews know of. The Jews took great pride in being sons of Abraham. And today they still do. My son just recently got back from Israel. And every time he would be introduced to a Jew, they would announce their name, I'm a son of Abraham. So my son being as brash as he is, because God made him that way, will say, well, which one? Which son? Ishmael or Isaac? Which one? And so that would make them very upset. Um, I, too, was raised in a religious home. And so for the longest time, I thought I was going to heaven because my parents are going to heaven. My dad's pastor. My mom was in women's ministry. Um, I had the PK card in my back pocket. I could just flip it out. And, um, you know, so sometimes I, w- I would love being known as a preacher's kid. And then sometimes I would not want to be known as a preacher's kid. All depending on who I was hanging out with. And so it wasn't until I learned on my own that my parents aren't going to get me to heaven. I'm going to get myself to heaven. So I couldn't just pass out my preacher's kid pass card. So it's not where you're from in your um, heritage. It's accepting Jesus Christ in your heart. Paul tells us that no one is truly Israel unless he is governed by God. We have a parallel situation with the word Christian. Is it possible that not everyone who is called a Christian is truly a Christ follower? Can we say that? From the beginning of creation, God already knew who would accept him and who would not. Does God love everybody? Yes. Of course he does. John 3.16. Does everybody love God? No. Does God know if before we were born we would follow Jesus? Yes. And if we wouldn't follow Jesus? Yes. Psalms 139.16, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your books. Every moment was laid out before a single day has passed. And so ask yourself this morning, who are you governed by? Is Christ the king of your heart? Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, we all know the story of the children of the flesh, right? Everyone know that story? Know the story of um, Sarah uh, being promised that she was going to have a son? And time was going by, and she was getting older and older and older, so she just told her husband, well, it's not going to be through me, so go sleep with my handmaid. So he went and had a child through Hagar, and her became Ishmael. But God said, no, that's not. That's not the person that I selected. And so Paul is saying that he's reminding them, this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Ishmael was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac was. 
But Ishmael was a son according to the flesh, and Isaac was a son according to the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. One was the heir of God's covenant of salvation, and one was not. Another example of the fact that promise is more important than the natural relation was Jacob and Esau. And Paul went over that too in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who caused. Not yet born. God chose Jacob over Esau before they were born. Neither had done good or evil. It wasn't based on any way by their works. It was solely based on him who calls. It's just who God called. Verse 12, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So, wait a minute. Does God hate? No, he doesn't hate. And in your Bible commentary notes, it tells us that the word translated hatred is called an idiom, where the opposite is used to express a lesser degree. It's actually called a Jewish language expression. Considering the context, the Hebrew expression, God loving Jacob and hating Esau, has nothing to do with the human emotions of love and hate. But it has everything to do with God choosing one man and his descendants and rejecting another man and his descendants. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Here again, it is him who calls. God states his absolute right not to be questioned by his creatures on his decisions. We are his creatures. We're not to question God. Every decision that God has already made is for his absolute good in our lives, whether we see it as just that or not. Paul's response to the question, is there unrighteousness with God? And to the next question in verse 19, why does he still find fault? Is not to justify God's actions or choices, but to state the unequivocal sovereignty of God in doing as he wills. God can do whatever he wants because he's God. Jumping down to verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand the glory even us whom he called, not of Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. We are all vessels of God. The question is not, why are some saved and some condemned? Our acceptance or rejection of Jesus is a free will choice on our part. It is only by God's grace that anyone is saved. God calls both Jews and Gentiles. Does he know our predestination? Yes, of course he does. It's God. 
God knew before time who would reject him and who would accept him. The question is, since Israel had the law and pursued righteousness, why have they not attained it? Was it because they were not elected? The answer is that they did not believe. Being committed to a righteousness by works, they stumbled over the righteousness of faith offered to them and to everyone else in Jesus Christ. God is not willing for anyone to perish. He is long-suffering. He is patient. But time is running out, and his patience will one day end. What can we do for the lost souls? Keep praying. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So just to recap, how much love did Paul have for the nation of Israel? Enough to be lost if it would do any good. Who are the two true children of God? Children of promise, not the flesh. What does God have the right to do? To show mercy on who he wills and to harden who he wills. What Old Testament prophet foretold that Gentiles would be a part of the people of God? Hosea. What did Isaiah say would happen to the nation of Israel? Only a remnant will be saved. Why are Gentiles among the saved? Why are you among the saved? Ask yourself. Because of faith? Why are some Israelites going to be lost? They trusted more in the keeping of the law and did not believe in Christ. So whatever road you're on, whatever road you've been on, and whatever road God is going to take you on, always remember, all roads are going to lead you straight to Christ. Amen? Amen. I think we have one more song.